this yes. is hell. All right, then. Protests against police violence, violence that has turned deadly far too often, raged this past summer following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a cop. This came a couple of months after the killing of Breonna Taylor at the hands of police and a few months before the police violence that targeted Jacob Blake. And those are only three names of hundreds of black Americans who were shot and the 164 killed by police in only the first eight months of last year of 2020. The outrage at racialized police violence led to discussions of defunding the police, if not abolishing abolishing them altogether and starting anew when it comes to serving the public's safety and security. The solution, it would seem, would be some level of police or law enforcement reform or justice reform in general, if not an entirely new alternative form of working with the public when it comes to policing. Or you can just make those protests illegal that will solve the problem. And making protests illegal may be a lot easier now that those who would oppose such restrictions on protests are shell-shocked by the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. For years, the right has been trying to stifle protest and dissent, and they may finally get their way if legislation in several states actually gets passed. We'll learn all about the attempts to limit protest in a few when we speak with reporters Aline Brown and Akela Lacey, who co-wrote the Intercept article, State Legislatures Make Unprecedented Push on Anti-Protest Bills Since the Day of the Capitol Insurrection. Nearly a fifth of all states moved bills that would crack down on protests. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Any plans for this weekend, Alex? Uh, no plans for this weekend because it's going to be so cold. But I did want to say real quick thank you to the two Northwestern students in the seventh floor of a parking garage yesterday. Uh, me and my kid have been wandering around Northwestern's mostly deserted campus mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And every once in a while, we'd hear horn music playing from somewhere on campus and we'd always wander around trying to find where it was and uh so we had the case of the mysterious horn player and then yesterday when we were bumming around in 20 degree weather on a parking garage you know that parking garage on the southeast corner of evanston's campus right where we used to do the show yes uh we took the elevator all the way up to the seventh floor and there were two trombone players practicing in the little tiny six by six vestibule heated vestibule area and they gave us a little concert they played uh, ride of the valkyries for my kid it was oh, really exciting oh that's very cool that's very cool uh my downstairs neighbor is a trombone player and uh could you get him to play in that parking garage up in evanston and far away from my home because i'm really sick of trying to read and all of a sudden there's a solo trombone piece going on i've been working really really hard this week at having absolutely nothing to do this weekend because Our house needs cleaning really badly, and my girlfriend has no time to help because she's uh, busy all weekend to work on, I don't know, some work-related project that's currently on a deadline. I think she's doing a demonstration of it as we speak right now, but I, I have no idea what she does for a living. I can't explain what she does. But I need to have absolutely nothing else to do, no distractions whatsoever, so I cannot make any excuse about why I'm not cleaning the house and during the pandemic. I found something very cathartic in house cleaning, and I've been having some serious anxiety issues lately. So I'm looking forward to cleaning the house, having nothing to do but cleaning the house. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell? This week's week's question from hell is, 
What are you what are you awake thinking about at three o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake thinking about at three o'clock in the damn morning? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of this is hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you can see all of the different ways you can support this is hell and all of our different swag. You can leave your answer to this week's question held at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth during this week's Moment of Truth. Jeff empathizes with savages and samurai. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guests. Again, this week's question from hell is what are you awake thinking about at three o'clock in the damn morning? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. After our conversation with Elizabeth Catt on her new book on the history of eugenics in the United States and especially Virginia yesterday, the book is called uh, hmm, Pure America. That's what it is. I have pre-America here, and my spell check didn't pick up on it. Pure America. So Adam sent a suggestion for those who are interested in the topic of eugenics here in the United States. Adam writes for more on the fascinating history of the eugenics movement. The PBS documentary, The Eugenics Crusade, is fantastic, not intended to imply an endorsement of all things PBS. Don't worry, Adam, we would never imply that you suggesting a PBS documentary on eugenics is in any way an endorsement of the doctrinaire authoritarianism that is promoted on shows like Reading Rainbow. And I've stumbled upon the Eugenics Crusade on PBS a couple of times, and what I've seen has been fantastic. So if you are interested in the topic, again, that's the PBS doc, the Eugenics Crusade. We also got an email at chuck at thisishell.com from Daniel, who writes, You guys rule. Thanks for all you do. Guest suggestion. Anna Artyushina. She's done a lot of work on different approaches to the governance of private data. I'm especially interested in her work on data trusts and how to achieve a balance between protecting privacy and enabling research. Tell Jeff Dorchin to stay beautiful for me, Daniel. So Daniel gives us links to Anna's work, including an article at MIT Technology Review from this past August. And that article was headlined, The EU is launching a market for personal data, which sounds kind of creepy, right? Here's what that means for privacy. In a radical shift for the EU's data governance strategy, the Trusts Project promotes data sharing as a civic duty. Now, that's interesting. Anna's bio explains her work is concerned with data trusts and data governance in smart cities. She conducts a comparative study of Sidewalk Labs Smart City in Toronto, Canada, and the Decode Smart City Project in Barcelona, Spain. Daniel, this is something I've never heard of but sounds absolutely fascinating. I've heard a lot of criticism of the Sidewalk Labs Smart City in Toronto, and I've heard a lot of a lot of really good things about the Decode Smart City project in Barcelona. This is why you, the listeners, are such an important part of our show. Your contributions are what make the content of This Is How so unique. Who knew that actually allowing people to be a part of the decision-making process would lead to programming the audience actually wants to hear? Finally, we got a guest suggestion from John that would likely cause a run on pitchforks and torches here in Chicago. John writes, and by the way, if you want to short sell on those things now, it might be a good idea. John writes, Alex and Chuck, if you are really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of guests, we're not, but (laughs) thanks, John. Let me suggest bringing on David Grazian, G R. 
A-Z-I-A-N. I read this article from him about blues music as an elaborate con that the state helps facilitate. Apparently, in sociology fields, one analytical approach is looking at things as a confidence game, which is what con stands for, which I did not know, says John. I knew that. This article is pretty old, but it's fascinating as well, and he is good-humored, so that's why I thought I would pass his name along to y'all. Also, please let me know if I can help out This Is Hell in any way. First, you can help John, and stay tuned in to find out how later on today's show. But more importantly, the paper John shares is titled, again, it's by David Grazian, G-R-A-Z-I-A-N, The Production of Popular Music as a Confidence Game, The Case of the Chicago Blues. In it, the author argues the success of the Chicago Blues Club lies in its ability to stage an authenticity that does not actually have a counterpart in the material world. Only the fantasy is real. The paper is from 2004, and I don't want angry blues fans becoming a mob and burning down our studio. So if you are interested in this really fascinating study, again, the author is David Grazian. That's why I've been spelling it out. G-R-A-Z-I-A-N. And his paper is titled The Production of Popular Music as a Confidence Game, The Case of the Chicago Blues. So go look it up yourself, because I don't want our studios to be burned down. This is not the media. This is hell coming up protests airing grievances instead of leading to policy reforms are prompting legislation to criminalize protest. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff empathizes with savages and samurai. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our different swag right now at thisishell.com and find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We do not take any foundation money. We're not a not-for-profit because we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. We don't have the money to be a not-for-profit. So you are the only support that we get here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail again at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell. Protests against police violence this summer were intended to promote reforms of law enforcement, but not a complete rethinking of how the state polices its citizens, and if they even should. Instead, those actions have led lawmakers to consider limiting protests and the likelihood some limitation will be put on our uh, constitutional right to air our grievances has greatly, greatly increased following the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Here to tell us what is happening when it comes to the government's response to protest and what that may mean for the future of protests in the United States, reporters Aline Brown and Akela Lacey co-wrote the Intercept article, State legislatures make unprecedented push on anti-protest bills. Since the day of the Capitol insurrection, nearly a fifth of states moved bills that would crack down on protests. Aline is a New York-based reporter focused on environmental justice issues. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aline. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. And uh, Akela is a politics reporter, also in New York. She was previously The Intercept's inaugural Addie Barkin reporting fellow. Welcome to This Is Hell, Akela. Thank you for having me. Let's start with you, Aline, because why not? Alphabetical order. You write, Ellie Page had never seen anything like what's happened in recent days. A senior legal advisor at the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law, Page 
has been tracking the proliferation of anti-protest bills across the U.S. since Donald Trump became, became president in 2017. And you quote her saying the number of bills we have seen in the past three weeks is unprecedented. That is from January 1st to January 21st, at the beginning of this year. So, Aline, are these laws designed so they would only prohibit the kinds of protests that seemingly provoked the bill? That would be protests by those with weapons who have the express purpose of targeting individuals or a group of people for potentially deadly violence. Are, Are these bills only targeting the exact kind of protest that we saw at the U.S. Capitol in January, on January 6th, because I think a lot of people would think that these bills are in reaction to those events. Yeah, so you would think that, but the reality is that these bills were not actually drafted in reaction to the events at the Capitol, and the language contained in the bills is so broad that it could impact um, people protesting, you know, any range of things nonviolently. Um, so, you know, the true origin of these bills is um, in a reaction to the police brutality um, uprisings this summer. Um, so we saw kind of the beginnings of these bills um, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis and the protests that followed. Um, a few states, including Tennessee, uh, drafted these sprawling bills criminalizing a range of protest activity. Um, you know, it happened that at the very moment that Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol, legislators were kicking off their legislative sessions. So a lot of these bills were kind of teed up. Um, but, uh, you know, after this um, this insurrection, um, a number some of them were sort of rebranded and kind of the the ability of lawmakers to um, get support for the bills expanded. So, you know, in Florida, for example, we saw Governor DeSantis uh, announced this wide-ranging anti-protest bill in the fall, um, framing it as a reaction to the protests over the summer. Um, and then when it was um, reintroduced, when, or when it was actually introduced in the legislature, uh, right after the um, the events at the Capitol, uh, DeSantis reframed the measure um, as being also aimed at protect, protecting against incidents um, like the attack on the Capitol. Um, you know, he said, he said, I hope maybe now we'll get even more support for my legislation because it's something that needs to be done. Um, and I think, you know, originally, if you have a bill that's obviously meant to tap tamp down um, kind of Black Lives Matter protests, police brutality protests, you're not going to get support from a lot of people on the lawmakers on the left, a lot of Democrats. Um, If you can now say that these bills are also about right wing violence, then um, it, it, it opens a possibility for it to become a bipartisan issue. This legislation, these proposed bills, as Aline was just saying, were in reaction to what happened over the summer with Black Lives Matter matters instead of as much a reaction to January 6th. Akela, do these bills, in your opinion, do they address violent protests more like the kind of violence that happened during the Black Lives Matter protests? Or do they address nonviolent protest more. Do you think that these these measures 
even before January 6th, were they racist? So the the measures um, definitely lower the bar for what is is considered, um, you know, a violent form of protest. And so it's more kind of changing the definition to apply to a really broad range of things. And also there are, you know, specific clauses that really target some of the, the things that we saw over the summer, um, you know, kind of related to property damage, but also to things like camping on government property, which we saw in a lot of state capitals where um, there were large movements of, of occupation of, of grounds, you know, state grounds. And so we see, you know, specific language targeting those kinds of things. Um, and then you also see language, I mean, the, the, the more concerning thing is that it, it really targets broad forms of protests uh, in as far as intent to influence government or, um, you know, changing kind of the definition of what qualifies as a riot. Like in some cases, we're talking about groups of three to five people or more ca causing varying kinds of disturbances. Um, but I think your question on whether or not they're racist is an interesting one. I mean, some of the clauses in particular specify types of intimidation, which is very subjective, especially when you're talking about the climate around protests this summer. It's pretty easy to make the argument that you feel intimidated by someone. And this is something that's part of the grievances that were raised in protest against police brutality over the summer that, you know, officers or bystanders often claim that they felt threatened as a justification for use of force often against black and brown people. Um, so that was, you know, those were basis, those were used to justify um, the killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis, as Ali mentioned, um, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, countless other people. And so when you look at those kinds of things, which, you know, if, if you're not kind of well versed in this kind of stuff, you could look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't want um, protests to be able to make people in their, you know, in their hometowns feel unsafe. But when you really dig into what unsafe means and who's defining who, you know, who makes the definitions of what being unsafe is, then there are uh, there are racist undertones to, to those those pieces of the bills. Aline, I was just curious when I was reading uh, your work, the indirect impact of some of these anti-protest laws that may not have been considered, or maybe they were considered, that was their original intent, things like criminalizing camping. Could that lead to something like making homelessness more criminalized than it already is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a Kayla's point, but the the language in these bills offers so much space for subjectivity on the part of a prosecutor or police um, means that they can be, you know, they'll be applied to um, the populations that are always the most criminalized, which will include homeless people or, you know, people with that, houseless people. Um, it will also include um Black people, people of color, um, the the space left for subjectivity here um, just kind of sets up these bills to um, to harm the most vulnerable first, and and have disproportionate impact on people um, that have um, you know more needs. Like for example, um, some of the bills include uh, make it so that riot quote unquote riot, you know, participants um, would not be eligible for bail um, for 12 hours unless a judge deemed them unlikely to begin, you know, rioting again. Um, that has that has immediate impact to it, that basically means that somebody arrested um, on these really subjective subjective terms um, 
could lose their freedom for a long period of time, um, you know, with, without any um, kind of assumption of innocence. Um, so yeah, I, I think that um, these, these can be applied very broadly. And when it comes to this really loose definition of riots, as you point out, riots include any disturbance in a public place involving at least three people obstructing government functions or putting property or people at risk. That seems like a really low bar. And you point out how new Nebraska penalties like once proposed in Mississippi and Indiana would also punish anyone aiding a riot. So if you are somehow determined to be aiding three people obstructing government functions or putting property or people at risk... You also would have committed a crime. So is this a formula for legal mass arrest, for legalizing mass arrests? Uh, I think it, it definitely could lead to that. Um, but again, the part of the issue with these bills and part of the criticism that we heard from civil liberties groups in states where they're being passed is that, um, you know, there are already laws on the books that protect against a lot of these things. So, um and that allowed what we saw massive arrests over the summer, you know, hundreds of people being given felonies, you know, in one day in places like Louisville and even in Washington, D.C. Um, so, again, the infrastructure to create mass arrests already exists, which is why these bills are are all the more concerning, because it lowers the bar even more for um, for what could be considered a crime. Um, also, on the point about aiding a protest, it also includes, um, you know, funding protesters. So, you know, that's a lot of a lot of these protest movements and, and grassroots organizations that that enabled the the kind of uh, momentum that we saw this summer are 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 funded by you know kind of mutual aid organizations and 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 rely on on those kinds of grassroots funding networks to to kind of you know, get the word out and, and organize and, and put these things in motion. So um, it really targets that whole infrastructure uh, in a way that that adds adds more concern than, than what we saw, you know, earlier in the summer um, or, or around protests earlier or sorry, around arrests earlier in the summer. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely it definitely would uh, increase uh, increase kind of that that machinery in a in a very disturbing way. You would write that uh, prosecutors would be able to bring felony charges against anyone who was a part of a riot where injuries or significant property damage occurred, even if they didn't personally cause it. So, Aline, in the situation with what happened on January 6th, would that mean that even those who did not enter the Capitol building, possibly even those who did not even go to Washington, D.C. at all, could be arrested, would have potentially broken a crime, people not even involved in the actual protests would be arrested for participating? Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of the the bills open up possibilities like that. Um, you know, they're so broadly framed that, you know, if you're in a space where one person, like, breaks a window, um, with some of these bills, you could be liable for being part of that quote-unquote riot. Um, yeah, you know, like if you helped pay for someone's GoFundMe to go attend a protest. Um, hypothetically, with some of these bills, you could um, be implicated as part of a quote-unquote riot. And um, yeah, again, I think it's important to remember that it's not going to be, you know, if where these bills are passed, it's unlikely that... Um, 
that like white people, um, like those that stormed the Capitol are going to be the ones that are subjected to this. Um, it's, it's really, their purpose is really not to, um, to target those people, but, um, yeah, again, it offers the possibility to, um, you know, subject anyone who's part of a, a protest, um, to, uh, harsher charges. And you also write that the Nebraska bill also creates new, harsher penalties for obstructing traffic, another one of the most common recent anti-protest bill elements, including in legislation in Oklahoma, Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Rhode Island, Kentucky, and Mississippi. So, Akela, when we started the show in 1996, it was during the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago, and it was the first time I saw protest zones, fenced in, caged really, as the fences were at least 12 feet high, and there was one way to get in or out, and inside the cage were armed Chicago police lined up around the edge behind barricades. Is the goal of these bills to further contain protest? And the reason I ask is, what do you think happens when protest is contained, when it cannot disrupt how things function? What happens to protest when it can't disrupt? Um, absolutely. I mean, the 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 clear intent of this is to keep people out of the streets, to keep people from obstructing the normal flow of cities, um, which is what got attention and, 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 you know, made the the kind of waves that, that, that we saw this summer. Um, I, if you can't, if you can't disrupt, then the, the protest the kind of falls apart. That's, that's the aim of it. Um, and I mean, just sort of a, not, not to, to kind of equate uh, sort of the protests that we saw this summer with with protests against um, the the election, but you know, seeing kind of the after after the attacks on the Capitol, um, there were groups uh, of kind of right wing protesters who had gotten um, permits to come and, and protest in in Washington, and they were they because of what happened, obviously they were confined to um, certain spaces where you had to walk through kind of like barricaded streets, and and then there was a, a closed off fenced off area um, where you had to be escorted in by a police officer in order to attend this protest. And you know we got there, and no one, no none of the protesters showed up, which I mean you know again not the same really um, ethos behind what they're protesting, but just to show that, you know, if you, if you add all of these constraints, then that, that, that dissolves, that dissolves the, the action. And that, I think that is part of the intent here. Um, some of the irony in this is that while there are harsher penalties for things like marching in the street, there are, um, there are clauses that, uh, you know, remove sort of the liability for people who drive into protesters in the street. So at the same time as you're adding sort of a chilling effect on people who might want to go out and demonstrate, you're also telling them that, okay, if you do go out and demonstrate and someone tries to harm you while you're doing this, you know, you don't, you will not be able to, um, to, you, you won't have any rights to, to kind of sue against that or, 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 um, you know, those people will be protected. Um, that's, that's part of uh, a number of the bills, which is, is, is pretty alarming as well. Um, you know, we did see trucks and, and cars drive into protests this summer and, and kill people like we, like we saw in, in 2016. And so we're moving kind of the barriers for, for that, that kind of harm while criminalizing, um, you know, nonviolent, uh, nonviolent kind of disruption of, of, of normalcy um, is, is definitely, uh, and that, that's part of the intent of, of the bill. 
There are a lot of disturbing parts of your article, but that is probably the most disturbing. I don't know. I don't want to try to grade them or rate them because there's a lot of disturbing things in these bills. So, Aline, as you write, in other states, bills would expand the definition of conduct that would justify use of force from bystanders against demonstrators, including things perceived as threatening behavior. Among those provisions, some states' proposals would strengthen stand-your-ground laws, all allowing deadly force should a, a person be confronted by a mob or a riot, and again, the loose definition of a riot, including in New Hampshire, other provisions such as in Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Florida would protect a driver who fleeing a riot injures or kills someone. So, Aline, how loosely defined is fleeing a riot? Will this give the far-right legal cover to purposely run down protesters? Are, are these laws intended to protect people like the suspect in the multiple shooting of protesters in Kenosha this summer or the killer of Heather Heyer? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly... I mean, these are these are bills that are designed to, um, you know, in addition to suppress protest like advance the careers of these lawmakers um so it's really like playing off of people's fears so you know there was a lot of fear there's a lot of people a lot of um i guess republican constituents um seem to be very like afraid right now we're very afraid this summer watching um the police brutality uprising um i mean there's a lot of fear about the way the world is changing. And so I think that the idea that if someone, if, if you find yourself caught in this like chaos of the world, you can just like run someone over. If you have to, you can defend yourself. I think that really um, plays into a kind of um, violent defensive politics that, um, um, that the right often turns to. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, um, it's really playing off of people's fear. That the right often turns to, and I don't know if I'll follow up on that, one of the things that people are constantly pointing toward is how liberal Democrats, there are many of them who believed if we just get rid of Trump, the problem is solved, not realizing that this is a bigger, that Trumpism is a bigger issue within the Republican Party than just one single person. How do you think, now that Trump is out of office, the Republican Party will react when it comes to protest? Will they continue this policy of being against protests while somehow embracing free speech? Um, I, I think, yes. I mean, th- there there doesn't seem to be sort of any um, acknowledgement within the, the party, particularly at this point. Um, you know, we're in the middle of, of Trump's second impeachment trial, so um, we're seeing a lot of kind of, you know, more of the same politicking on this kind of stuff. But, yeah, I think um, there is not really any sort of indication that the right has, you know, wants to come around on, on this stuff, particularly because the people that, you know, people in their base who are, who are out protesting right now are kind of, you know, they are uh, kind of aligned or, or thought to be aligned with, you know, what happened with the, the attacks at the Capitol. So I don't see that, <laughs> I don't see that necessarily happening um, anytime soon, but the, the, the free speech issue, um, you know, they, there's sort of a very clear cognitive dissonance 
on that that I don't, I think is sort of like part of the ethos of the, of the, of the party at this point, and there, there's not really any sort of uh, trending against that. Um, you know, it, it, it will be interesting to see how this, this plays out after kind of Trump has, you know, kind of uh, gone from, from the, the people's minds on this a little bit. You know, I think that'll take a while, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't see, I don't see them coming around on, on, you know, the fact that there's obviously um, a very clear contradiction between saying, you know, we only want certain types of people to be allowed to protest. Um, we only want you to be allowed to protest if you're on this side of an issue or that side of an issue. Um, and I mean, the support for kind of the political prosecutions on on people who are arrested during protests is is really part of this whole this whole game. And I, that's that's again, you know, part part of part of the the party's platform at this point. So I don't, yeah, I don't see that that changing anytime oh. soon. Eileen, you write of the proposed state anti-protest measures that they range from barring demonstrators from public benefits or government jobs to offering legal protections to those who shot or run over protesters. Three days after the U.S. Capitol protest, CNN reported as images in social media posts of Wednesday's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol circulate online. Some of those who were present are being identified and some have lost or left their jobs because of it. Navistar, a direct marketing company in Maryland, announced that an employee had been terminated after he was photographed wearing his company ID badge inside the breached Capitol building. In a statement, Navistar announced, while we support all employees' right to peaceful, lawful exercise of free speech, any employee demonstrating dangerous conduct that endangers the health and safety of others will no longer have an employment opportunity with Navistar Direct Marketing. With job loss, less access to employment, and the loss of public benefits, both the market and the state, in tandem, seem to be punishing protest. How financially devastating uh, could protesting be if these laws were passed? Yeah, I mean, I think that they could have, if they were passed and, you know, prosecutors actually used them and applied them, um, they could be very harmful. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and really, like, again, suppress... Um, participation in um in protests uh especially you know if you have a government job um i you know i've heard of teachers in the past say oh that i you know i, I guess that i know personally you say like oh I, I can't really like participate in this because i'm i'm like have this public position um i think that if you're going to lose your job if you show up at a protest and someone that you don't know breaks a window then you might decide not to go like if you're um if you're going to lose the public benefits that your family relies on um for housing or food security um that you know that's that's hugely that's hugely harmful um it's a really serious um threat and um and if applied would could be really devastating for families and again i think i think that something like that is more likely to be applied to the to people who are always criminalized you know to um, black, indigenous, people of color, um, houseless people. Um, yeah. Akela, you also, you and Aline also write that a few bills seek to prevent local governments from defunding police. What impact do you think that would have on any possible effective reform of the police if somehow defunding police is criminalized? Mm. 
Um, well, I think the, these pieces of the bills are, are really interesting because they try to take away, um, you know, municipal jurisdiction over a municipal issue um, and give it to, to the state or to the governor, um, which kind of goes, flies in the face of sort of, you know, if you're talking about kind of like Republican um, views of, of, of the law um, and who should be kind of administering and, 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 and laying that down. Um, it, it definitely would uh, incentivize cities to to kind of I, I mean the idea is that it, it was trying to incentivize cities not to to pass these kinds of measures um and again many cities um you know los angeles um, um seattle um philadelphia have 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 voted to kind of um or at least start conversations about about reallocating police budgets some successfully and some still in conversation and so these are things that are happening and i think um lawmakers are you know again um as ali mentioned in florida you know obviously kind of working with law enforcement on this and 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 trying to um kind of stem that and and sort of you know say at least send a message that if you do this, you know, you will be subject to, um, you know, either cuts in funding or, or other sort of legal ramifications. Um, so that, you know, it, it remains to be seen if that uh, would, if, if again, if these will pass and if there would be sort of any legal challenges to that, because um, there are uh, reasons that these are municipal issues. And so I'm sure that would, those would cause some, some sort of rifts down the road. I'm not sure that it would be so easy to just, you know, make people not, uh, you know, uh, pursue these kinds of measures. Um, but that's definitely, again, uh, sort of the, the intent and sort of what uh, what things could look like if, if they were to pass. Aline, you write that the logic for a bill in Minnesota is clear indigenous-led pipeline opponents participating in a direct action protest movement against Enbridge's Line 3 tar sands pipeline in the state have repeatedly halted pipeline construction. You're from Minnesota, and you write that the Minnesota bill focuses on individuals who aid oil pipeline protesters, including up to 10 years imprisonment if their associate damages the property with the intent to prevent pipeline operations. So, Aline, is protesting becoming illegal to protect climate change causing fossil fuel projects that are destroying the planet? When What does it say to you that in the face of a climate change crisis, Instead of stopping what was causing climate change, we stopped the people who tried to stop it. Is the right criminalizing protest to protect fossil fuel jobs and industry and to continue climate change? Yeah, I mean, these this this Minnesota bill is part of kind of another um, trend of anti-protest bills that goes back to the um, the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, um, right as Trump was being elected, um, and that's kind of you know the International Center for Nonprofit Law started tracking uh, anti-protest bills um, as there was this big um i guess swoop of them um in the wake of the the dapple uh, the no dapple movement um and um these are these kind of remind me a lot of ways in the anti riot bills that we're seeing more now because it's another sort of bait and switch they are framed as critical quote unquote critical infrastructure laws so you know conveniently defined under critical infrastructure is oil and gas pipelines and all these bills like it that have been introduced um, but it has this like hyper neutral framing that allows a range of people to um, or I guess lawmakers to 
to hop on board. Um, and, and yeah, so the critical infrastructure bills, um, in addition to Minnesota, um, there are two others that were just introduced actually since we wrote our article in Arkansas and Kansas. Um, there have also been 13 passed um, in, in different states across the U.S. since 2016. Um, and they, this um, brand of bill uh, has really been pushed by um, the American Legislative Ex Exchange Council, uh, which is a right-wing organization whose members are legislators and corporate lobbyists um, who create these um, model bills that are passed among largely Republican um, lawmakers uh, across the U.S. So ALEC, um, which is kind of a fossil fuel-backed organization, um, has helped spread these critical infrastructure bills. It's very clear that they're um, meant to go after uh, people that would hold kind of direct action protests against fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and they create, I mean, generally they create heightened penalties for um, anyone who um, enters a quote-unquote critical infrastructure property. So basically, if you were going to a construction site and trying to, um, you know, register your objection to um, this pipeline being placed in um, your um, your territory, you know, in, in Minnesota, um, the pipeline passes through Anishinaabe territory, and it's really an indigenous-led um, movement against that pipeline. Um, so for those people who um, protest on that pipe in the area where the pipeline's being put in, uh, they would face uh, heightened penalties. And again, they do a similar, a lot of these bills do a similar thing where if you um, are, you know, if you're supporting people who trespass on critical infrastructure or people who damage critical infrastructure in any way, then you also could be, um, you know, charged and face uh, jail time or really, you know, massive fees. Um, so it's really meant to kind of break down um, a movement and um, discourage dissent. You and Aline also write that like many of the other states of efforts, the Minnesota bill is not exactly new. Versions of it have been introduced and rejected repeatedly in recent years, a pattern also playing out with Rhode Island's anti-protest bill. Akela, do you think criminalizing protest will radicalize protests, make it more militant? Will it affect protests in all the ways those who have safety concerns do not want it to be affected, making it even potentially more violent? Um, I, I don't think that is necessarily the case. Um, I think, you know, the real concern here is that um, protesters will either be kind of pushed to not uh, not engage in protest or that they will be um, kind of arrested and, and criminalized in mass when they do. Um, you know, we saw kind of a, a wide range of, of, you know, types of protests this summer, um, some with, with property damage and, and, and some which were, you know, did not have that and, and were very um, sort of, you know, drawn out, as we mentioned, with, you know, occupations at the Capitol. And so I don't, I don't think that this is, you know, going to change people's behavior and, and make them, you know, do anything crazy. But um, I do, I do think that either, you know, 
again, yet to be seen if, if some of these will pass. Some of them are moving, some of them are not at the moment, but um, sort of the likelihood of passage is, is kind of heightened given that so many, as Ali mentioned, that so many lawmakers are sort of kind of using these bills um, to further their careers and, and want to be seen as being sort of tough on crime in response to the Capitol attack, despite, you know, these bills not kind of doing anything to, to change um, what we saw there. Um, but, you know, on that point, I do think that, you know, the, the concern about um, uh, extremism and, and groups, groups like we saw um, in the attack on the Capitol is, is actually part of the concern. And again, the irony is that these bills would actually not do anything to kind of um, deter that kind of activity. So um, those are kind of the two like parallel, um, uh, you know, themes uh, for, for, for how I think these things will be impacted. But, um, you know, the, the, the main point being that um, there is not really a way to criminalize a way or, or prosecute away sort of the, the violence that we saw, particularly in the attacks on the Capitol. And, and that's why, you know, some of these bills are so um, kind of misaligned with, with their um, purported purposes. This is absolutely fantastic writing. We have been speaking with reporters Aline Brown and Akela Lacey, who co-wrote the Intercept article, State Legislatures Make Unprecedented Push on Anti-Protest Bills. We end all of our interviews with one final question, and that question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our (laughs) audience is going to hate your response. We have a separate one for each of you. Let's start with you, Aline. What kind of government do we have? What kind of justice system do we have when the law allows for violence, potentially deadly violence, against those who protest the government, the justice system, or what is the law? What kind of government is that, in your opinion? Is there a name you could or would want to put on that kind of government? A government that allows... I'm sorry, can you repeat that? That allows for violence against protesters who are protesting that government. Um, I mean, I think a government system that really, like, encourages violence against dissent might, one might frame it as, um, you know, uh, sort of fascist, um, sort of, yeah, that's a a very violent form of um, governance and form of control. Akela, our question from hell for you, because we got Aline to use the F word. I love that. Uh, I had, I tried my hardest. I really, really tried hard to not watch the impeachment proceedings because President Trump's acquittal seems inevitable. However, I watched a few minutes yesterday during the second day of the trial, and all I could think about it is that somehow the outcome is going to be Democrats finding bipartisan consensus with Republicans against extremism and exchange for cracking down on fascist anti-fascism will somehow be criminalized as well. So what's wrong with the two major parties actually showing unity, being united around a policy of anti-extremism? Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with it, except that I think, uh, it, well, actually, that's not true. I mean, I think part of the part of the issue is that we're seeing is like there's a sort of rush to look tough on uh, on extremism and and to um, in a way that isn't sort of thoughtful about how these um, these measures have been used to overcriminalize poor and and um, marginalized communities. And so instead of actually thinking about 
um, sort of the ways that the parties have failed us and sort of gotten us to this place, people sort of latch on to, you know, like we're going to, we're going to launch new anti-terror bills. We're going to launch new anti-protest bills. We're going to do all these things that actually um, let people that we are, we should be targeting kind of off the hook and, and, and sort of like the malicious, um, you know, uh, nature of, of sort of extremism, um, you know, is not addressed through, and, and I don't think can be addressed through, through prosecution. And so um, that is sort of, you know, the tough on crime, um, you know, mindset that lingers in, and is, is also at the forefront of, of both of the parties um, is, is part of the reason that there hasn't been a, a real solution or, or a concerted effort to really actually look at how we got to this point, um, you know, from, from, the, from a congressional standpoint, at least. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This really, like I was saying, spectacular writing. State legislatures make unprecedented push on anti-protest bill at The Intercept. We have a direct link to it at our website. Thank you both so much for being on our show and enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after. Tomorrow on Patreon, we're playing one of our half dozen interviews we did with the late great historian Howard Zinn. I'm not sure what's happening on your social media timelines or feeds or whatever the hell you're looking at. But like last week, when I noticed a sudden interest in Christopher Hitchens, and no, I have no idea why, leading us to play one of our interviews with Christopher from back in 2001 that you can hear on Patreon right now, uh, there's suddenly some newfound interest in the work of Howard Zinn, with people openly wondering if Howard's seminal work, The People's History of the United States, is actually worth reading. Sure, some are saying Howard's reading of history is one-sided, but Howard admits that in the introduction (laughs) to people's history. But his history is not from the it's not from the winner side, but, uh, you know, it's a catalog of history from the loser side, if you will, suffering at the hands of the victors who are always celebrated, no matter how cruel that victory was. Instead of from that perspective of reinforcing cruelty, Howard was about what happened to the victims of that cruelty. So we're playing the third of our six interviews we did with Howard tomorrow, Friday, live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at the same place. You can also hear our first two interviews with Howard from September and October of 2001 in the immediate wake of 9-11 on Patreon. Just subscribe and search on Zin and Enjoy. Meanwhile, I have no idea what you learned from this week's shows. Everybody takes something different from each of the conversations we have here on This Is Hell. After Tuesday's talk with Keller Easterling, Jess, our new board op, and I mentioned how we had two completely different takeaways from that conversation. But yet again, uh, this week's show really screwed with my head. And I'll be telling you how and why on Patreon tomorrow. But you can only hear our 2006 interview with the late, great Howard Zinn and my ramblings about how this week's show really did a number on my psyche by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. When Howard passed away, I actually broke down in tears because he was one of the very first people to give us a quote of endorsement, writing, I've always welcomed the opportunity to be interviewed by Chuck Mertz on his radio program, This Is Hell. He is unabashedly partisan on matters of justice and peace and gives his interviewees the opportunity to express themselves as boldly as they like. He upholds the best standards of independent media, honesty, courage, refusal to play the game. I hope he will continue 
to get the support he needs. Me too, Howard. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff empathizes with Savages and Samurai. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what is this week's question from hell and how are people responding? This week's question from hell is, what are you awake thinking about at three o'clock in the damn morning? Kent C says, why did I go to Facebook jail for my comment here? I, I, did you see his earlier comment that sent him there? No. Neither did I. We're all in Facebook jail. It's called Facebook. <laughs> exactly. Uh, d- DM me that comment, though. I'm kind of curious about it. Uh, Gorilla G says, but why really can't we have nice things? <laughs> Kim G says, I should just get up to pee now. Or can I wait? No, go now. <laughs> At least and, it's pee. And Chase C says, this is not show. This is hell. <laughs> Got a bunch more via Twitter, DM, etc. You want to do those now or after Jeff? Up to you. Uh, let's do some of them now. Okay. Adam B says, would it help me to fulfill my Messiah complex if I legally changed my first name to pizza? Uh, Neil C says, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Max says, would worldwide implementation of a one-child policy entail that the living could never outnumber the dead? (laughs) That's Uh, the tote board we need to have like in Times Square. Uh, Ahmad S says, whether I'm stoned enough to eat the cookies my Trump supporter neighbor gave me. (laughs) Hypocrite Reader, uh, check them out, hypocritereader.com. I think this is their address. Uh, look it up. I think so. It says the eerie resemblance between Franz Kafka and Christopher Moltisanti from The Sopranos. <laughs> and Rock Tracer says, I would have, uh, Rock Tracer says, would have been despaired having to go to work in a mere two hours, but now it will be a nightmare of Chuck's porch as a porn set. <laughs> what the, what the hell, hell is going on over there, Rock Tracer? I don't know. This week's question from hell again is, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the morning? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins any part, any piece of our merchandise. This is hell merchandise. You can see it at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer now because after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Your wish is my mistake. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Today, I feel like the psychiatrist in Equus. My patient has made a confession. My patient's habit is to strip naked and ride his living God, bareback through the night, howling. My patient has been shamed before his God and has therefore blinded the witnessing angels. His passion is alive and savage, his worship naked and raw, his humiliation haunted and bloody. And I'm like, damn, wish I could get off like that. You know who I think would really have gotten off on that bareback, naked and raw passion? Heidegger. Martin Heidegger, who started out as Hannah Arendt's mentor, then lover, And then, after she fled the Nazis, became a member of the Nazi party and stayed that way as long as those OGs remained in charge. The Nazis did, however, force him to step down from a university department chairmanship. Some thanks for all his trouble of rejecting the work of his Jewish colleagues. As much as I mourn the loss of my childish enthusiasm for animals and atavistic sexual obsession, I think Heidegger takes 
nature, passion, fetishism to another level, maybe the highest level. His support for the Nazis came about because he believed he saw something true and exciting. Political ideology tapping into an essence redolent with beefcake adventure sweat. He drank it up. The sweat of Nazi manhood was his holy water. For an intellectual placed an inordinate faith in purity and spirit, for such an avid guzzler of man-sweat, it's odd that he never grew out of his boyhood fantasies. The desire to return to the past should always remain a desire. The thirst must remain its own beverage, in the way of so many of our wishes and ambitions. Unattainable desire must be its own satisfaction, lest the imbiber, in accelerating the quest, become intoxicated enough to act on it. Knowing the difference between a possible dream and a doomed adventure is most important when the dreamer intends to take others along, and it's especially urgent when one intends to bring along an entire nation, or maybe tomorrow, the world. Acting on such intentions on a grand scale isn't actually primal, essential, or near to the source of life. It's a mistake. Even most Stone Age people weren't that stupid. The Inuit aren't that stupid, just to take a current example. They exercise self-control and teach their children to manage their feelings. You won't see them bursting into bloody, preverbal rage, hurting people into gas chambers or blinding their gods in humiliation. But even self-control is no guarantee of post-primal intelligence. A couple of symptoms of the mistakes I'm talking about are the imperial tendency and the tyrannical tendency. There's an idea, very popular over the centuries as well as currently, an idea of mastery over the self. It quickly bleeds into mastery over others. Like the desire for the thrill of rebirth, the two desires for singular purity and for the gathering of external territories into an eternal realm of control are equally infantile. If it seems I might be bagging on most of what created civilization, you're not wrong. I grow more certain every day that civilization was a mistake from the get-go. Not that I can live without it, but that's no measure of the objective goodness of an invention. Sure, there are expressions of the human project that are beautiful and significant, but do they make up for the rotten aspects of civilization? Depends who you're asking. The answer from the planet itself might be coming sooner than we think. One of the most civilized people I can think of is Yukio Mishima. I've mentioned him before and haven't said much of interest, I'm sure, to anyone truly familiar with the man. He was an author, an actor, a swordsman, and a master of self-discipline up to a point. His ideal was Bushido, the samurai code which by the 18th century had already been romanticized. The samurai who lived during their heyday at the height of the daimyo's dominant role in controlling territory probably didn't exemplify Bushido, certainly not any strictly codified one. And the samurai who most embodied Bushido probably weren't around until Bushido itself had become mostly an advisory brochure for a way of life no longer necessary to society. By the time Mishima reached the age of seven in 1932, it had been ecstatically idealized in the popular imagination, so much so that it qualified as fuel for chasing an impossible dream.
By the time they made the stupid mistake of trying to conquer the world, a mistake littered with ghastly errors and which eventually culminated in utterly ghastly devastation and humiliation, the Japanese, for the most part, had internalized the hallmarks of the Bushido Code, obedience and deference to authority, loyalty to the divine emperor, and mastery over the self. Mishima was about 20 when the consequences came crashing down. After the nuclear holocaust in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Bushido and its major hallmarks diminished in popularity. By 1968, when Mishima was in his 40s, the global rebellions of that year felt right at home in the hearts of young leftists marching in Tokyo. Mishima was outraged. He hadn't lost a bit of his Bushido enthusiasm. He was still bitter about the beating Japan had taken in the war. What he saw as its economic and geopolitical emasculation by the USA in the years following the war, and he wasn't too happy about the emperor renouncing his divinity either. So that same year, he recruited about a hundred right-wing college students who saw things his way and formed a private militia called the Tatnokai. They were mostly staff members of a right-wing student paper, kind of similar to the campus Republicans back in the Reagan years. The kids followed this charismatic lunatic about 25 years their senior, because that's what you do when you're in college. He got permission for them all to train with the actual military. Two years later, along with four select members of the Tatanokai, Mishima led his coup attempt holding a self-defense force officer hostage, taking over the military headquarters, and giving a speech from the balcony to some assembled troops of the Japanese self-defense forces. He wanted to restore the divinity of the emperor. He wanted to restore the old values of obedience, discipline, and loyalty, and go back to the old ways. His message was so badly received, he decided to cut the half-hour speech short by 23 minutes. He went back into the building and disemboweled himself, just as Bushido demanded of a samurai suffering the humiliation of defeat. A private militia, a failed coup at a government building, ending in humiliating defeat, sounds familiar. And to my mind, the dorks of the Michigan kidnapping attempt and of the follies of January 6th were an awkward hybrid of both Heidegger's and Mishima's forms of wishful thinking. They acted out of what they, in their misinformed rage, considered raw guts and courage, like real men and women, unmediated by the niceties demanded by effete misfits and tree-hugging commies. They wanted to go back to the old ways, when America was great, women, children, and black people were obedient, the president was chosen by God, and soldiers had the mastery over themselves to hold their hands over candle flames, eat rats, learn to repel into capital rotundas, and live by the natural law of the Old West or some such garbage. These peculiar men and women were somehow even more delusional than a German philosopher phenomenology who believed the Nazis would give him freedom of thought at a university. More delusional than an author and actor who thought he could persuade anyone to join him in overthrowing a government and returning to the mythic values that had led to Japan's disastrous role in World War II. They are so delusional they don't even realize how humiliated they've been. They are so not finished with the mad purpose and the mad pursuit 
of their impossible dream. They are so not finished with us. And the saddest part is, even the government they see themselves as oppositional to is delusional. It believes, also, that it can go back in time. Back to the time before the pandemic. Back to what they call normal. And I'm afraid that most of the country, maybe even most of the world, also cling to this unfulfillable wish right along with them. Yes, I'm a little envious. I want to ride the horsey naked in orgasm. I want to play with swords. I'd like to bust into the Senate right now and take over, put all my cranky but brilliant friends in charge. Trouble is, I'm pretty sure we'd all get shot. Maybe some for having the wrong color. Maybe all for having the wrong color hat, or the wrong color freak flag, or the wrong color dream. So what I'm doing is looking down the road, after the savages have had their tantrums and the samurai have performed their seppuku, when the dreamers just don't know when to quit, when they are so determined to make their foolhardy wish come true that they lead us all into a big mistake. I'm looking down the road because I believe that's where we're headed as a nation, into a big, nostalgia-driven, global Stupid, stupid, stupid mistake. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So you know the derogatory name for Frank Lloyd Wright is Frank Lloyd Wrong, right? That's a very... Uh, okay. So do you know the derogatory name for Yukio Mishima? No, what? (laughs) Yucky Mishimash. (laughs) That's... Fair. I got to say, that's fair. Hey, you know, uh, Alex is really cutting those deep cuts with Sanford Clark. Did you hear that? Sanford Clark. Next, he's going to be playing Furlan Husky. (laughs) At least the second name I knew. You know what the, um, you know what the, uh, the old timey oil man said when someone told him to watch One Straw Revolution? What's that? I only need one straw to drink your milkshake. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Oh, um, wait, wait. The thing about porn set on your porch? Yeah. You said people were screwing on your porch. No, well, that's, yeah, I guess they, they they do. They have had sex on my front porch. Uh, but when he said porch, I was thinking of my, of my back deck for whatever reason. And nobody, <laughs> including me, even by myself, has had sex on my back deck. On our front porch, sure. In our stairwell, yes. In the foyer, okay. In the gangway, why not? By the entrance to our basement in the back that's open to the public, sure. Underneath the staircase, of course they have. It's time to break that back deck in, man. I mean, <laughs> not not it's not the season right now, but... Yeah, you know, when it warms up, get to it. <laughs> you're right, you're right. And I do need to have that thing seasoned. All right, Jeffy, until next week. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do you have any more questions for, or answers to this week's question from Hell? Duh, that should have faded up a little fast. A little <laughs> That's slower. okay. I, I jumped on it. Sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? Mr. Malloy says, often as I am, just lying on my back in a temperate climate, warming up under my winter blanket, mostly due to farting under it so much, thinking to myself inescapable worries about all that permafrost up north, it ain't just so perma anymore. Among other thoughts about a weird difference between my body. Uh, let me pull that down. Sorry. 
I'm trying to hang up on Jeff too at the same time. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, think about a weird difference between my own body and the planet Earth right now being that I don't require permafrost to keep my dirty vapors from spoiling the whole goddamn place. Oof, it's getting a little too warm under here either way. Blanket off. <laughs> Yuck. Jesus Christ. That's disgusting. Uh, ATM says, will my prostate work better than the state? <laughs> Eatfart69 says, how can people be so stupid? Ryan K says, if, Alabama, or if Amazon workers in Alabama will win their union, LNS says, if I should reply to this tweet, damn it, you did it again. Mike R says, that my demon is on my butt. And finally, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? Edison K says, the anesthesia component of lethal injections occasionally fails, causing the victim to experience an intense amount of pain while remaining, remaining paralyzed. Can the same thing happen to dogs when they are euthanized? Wow. <laughs> wow, dude, go damn. back to sleep. The answers I liked the most were, and Alex will probably have a differing opinion on this, and I want to get your input, Alex. Uh, Kent saying, why did I go to Facebook jail for my comment here? Simply because I'm now curious. Ahmad saying, whether I am... Stoned enough to eat the cookies my Trump supporter neighbor gave me. I'd be, eh, yeah, I don't know. If you if you get really stoned, then you'd be kind of paranoid about it. So I don't. So if you get too stoned, I don't know. Andrew saying, "Is Richard going to flub reading my response and cost me my chance at some sweet this is hell swag? That is a spectacular." answer to the question from hell and if you were listening on Wednesday's show Richard's reading of that line and flubbing it was spectacular uh, Philip saying my Amazon shift is almost over that is something that will keep you up at 3 o'clock in the damn morning Adam saying I'm wondering if my severe depression is linked to my inability to succeed under US American capitalism or would I still be a wreck under fully automated space communism as well and Adam saying was this a question from hell? This is how would have asked listeners 13 years ago. So back in February of 2008, the beginning of the year in which Barack Obama was elected president. Yeah, I think we would have been asking this question. What keeps you up at three o'clock in the damn morning? Because back then we were telling everybody about how the financial crisis of September 2008 was going to happen. We'd been telling people about it for years. So yeah, this is exactly the same question we would have been asking 13 years ago. Uh, which one do you like the most, Alex? Anything really jump at you? Yeah, my favorite was uh, Sloan saying cheese, nothing but cheese. <laughs> but uh, I think maybe uh, the best one is, uh, let me pull it, uh, Philip A. saying, my Amazon shift is almost over. I think that is spectacular. The brevity of it is fantastic, and it was something completely different from what everybody else said. So, Philip A., you are the winner to this week's question from hell. All you have to do is send us your mailing address via email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and tell us which piece of merchandise you want that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from Al, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? Death and bathtubs. And death by bathtub. I've been thinking about death because someone I love very much passed away, and I cannot get her out of my head. There hasn't been a day where I haven't been crying since she passed away a couple weeks ago. So I've been thinking about death every time I wake up. And then, you know, if you live in an older building, uh, like I do, I live in a building that's about 95 years old. Uh, all the floors squeak. The wooden floors squeak wherever you are. You can't take a step in my house without the floor squeaking. Well, for whatever reason, the joists underneath our bathtub, those are now squeaking. And I'm very fearful that my girlfriend and I will be getting romantic and having a taking a bath together. 
and filling the tub with us and water. And all of a sudden, our third floor bathtub becomes a second floor bathtub and possibly our tomb. Thanks to everybody by sending in your answers to for sending in your answers to this week's question mail. Special thanks to the third John who signed up to Patreon this week and everyone who joined us on Patreon, as well as all of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support to show your appreciation for completely listener-funded This Is Hell. So thanks, John and John and Jonathan for joining us here on Patreon this week. Or tomorrow on Patreon. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is taking a dip in the Atlantic Ocean. Thanks to this week's guests, including cultural theorist Lynn Paramore, who wrote the article Epidemic of Despair Could Haunt America Long After COVID, which you can find at the website ineteconomics.org. Also thanks to architect Keller Easterling, author of Medium Design, Knowing how to work in the world, find out more about Keller at her website, KellerEasterling.com. Thanks to yesterday's guest, historian Elizabeth Catt, author of Pure America, Eugenics, and the Making of Modern Virginia. Find out more about her at ElizabethCatt.com. That's C-A-T-T-E. And finally, thanks to today's guests, reporters Aline Brown and Akela Lacey, who co-wrote the Intercept article, State Legislatures Make Unprecedented Push on Anti-Abortion Bills. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2006 talk with the late, great Howard Zinn, and I will be struggling with the lessons I learned from our guests this week and what I learned today. Again, it may not be what you get out of this week's shows, but it's what I did. But you can only hear that by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.